Do digital devices impact our well-being, our happiness, our mental health? Before I started doing this research, I thought I had a pretty good idea about the answers to these questions, based on my own personal experiences. From the age of about 13, I was a gamer, and being a gamer in the 90s meant initially that if I wanted to play multiplayer, I had to carry my desktop computer round to my friend's house and set it up in his bedroom, something that I did regularly. Later, we would use dial-up internet to play one of the first massive multiplayer online role-playing games called Ultima Online. I loved it. I lived it. I was a bit socially awkward as a kid, and this was a world where I didn't have to be bound by the rules of middle school and what was cool and what wasn't. I didn't have to be Tim. I could be Doomlord. I had more control in this new world. I could gain experience, level up, interact with other people who shared the same interests as me turn Doomlord into whatever I wanted without having to be good at rugby or be in a band. It unquestionably made me happier and helped me forge a lifelong relationship with the person who would eventually become the best man at my wedding. Sure, times were a bit different then. We had to stop playing if someone wanted to use the landline and social media was limited to things like MSN Messenger. But is it really that different now? It turns out that yes, it is. I'm Tim Lovett, aka Doomlord, the head of digital learning at UWCSEA Dover Campus, and this year it is my job to figure out what to recommend to principals about our mobile device policy on campus. I'm documenting my journey into the global research and opinions from around our college to try and figure this one out. Thanks for joining me. So I'm back on campus, I'm here to ask some students what they think. Do their phones make them happy? Uh, the question is, uh, what kind of emotions do you associate with your phone? Like, does your phone make you happy or is it something else or...? A little bit of stress, honestly, because I feel like there's like some sort of pressure associated with your phone because like, when I go on my phone, then I feel like I'm being unproductive, so then I get stressed. But then it's like, I want to take a break from the stress, so then I go on my phone. But then I feel stressed that I'm on my phone. Okay. So it's just like an endless cycle of me being like, I should be working, and then I don't end up working. But it's also like fun because like I get to talk to my friends on my phone and like make plans, text your friends. It's like a good break. I'm a boarder, so like, uh, my parents, my family, everyone is like 9,000 kilometers away. So like, I, I need my phone, I, it's like a necessity for me. I associate it with happiness, honestly, because I find my phone really fun and I have like games and things. And so I feel like, although it can be a distraction, like, I think it's like, it's not my main source of happiness. Of course, I have like <laughs> friends and things, but like, it's how I contact like my friends and so I don't know, there's that association that I have with it. I don't have like any like positive or really negative emotions attached to my phone. It's just simply there. And often it gets in the way of me doing other stuff, which then bothers me. How about things like, uh, like social media and like comparisons to other people's ideal lives and stuff on social oh, media? Do you, so how, how do you like... I feel like to some extent I let it get to me because yeah. it's like everything looks better when you're on the outside of it or like your life feels more fun in hindsight so i think it's just like when i see 
romanticization or like idealization of what life should be it makes me feel like oh i'm not doing enough or like oh they're having so much fun i wish i could be doing that but it's like 80 percent of life is boring and you have to kind of accept that <laughs> yes social media does idolize like um influencers and have like these and they have platforms to share their life but you know i don't think that they're necessarily happy and so honestly it makes me feel good about myself and the fact that i'm happy so you know that yes of course we get caught up with like comparisons like why is my life not like that but i think honestly what people need to do and people don't do it enough these days is like reflect on their own life and see what they have and appreciate what they have i often feel that when you're comparing when you're comparing your your life to something on for example tiktok which is often my main source of like stress or like it, like entertainment i feel like i compare myself and then i get mad about my life not looking like that and then i try to convince myself to stop being on my phone which makes me then realize oh my life is not much that's not that fun let me go back on tiktok because my life is boring and it's just like you can't really escape it Now, before I start talking about this stuff, you'll notice that I focus a lot on social media in this episode. Phones do all sorts of things. Why am I focusing on social media? Well, two reasons. Firstly, it's a huge part of what devices are being used for. I surveyed several hundred of our high school students, and over 80% of them had some form of social media as their most frequently used app, and some form of social media as the app that they spent the most amount of time on. Their total screen time is somewhere averaging around four hours, which is about a quarter of their waking day. And so social media is a big part of what device is being used for. The second reason is that arguably, as we'll see, it has the biggest impact on well-being. So can social media be a good thing? Well, that depends on what it's being used for. In a survey of thousands of teenagers in the UK, a study found that some very commonly used apps like YouTube had an overall net positive effect on well-being, whilst other apps like Snapchat and Instagram had a net negative impact. The study reported that almost 70% of teenagers said that they found some kind of support on social media during challenging times. Many young people felt like social media was valuable for their self-expression and identity, and I can see that being really valuable. I've felt those benefits personally. Another way to look at whether something is good or bad is to take it away and see what happens. What happens when we take phones away? Here's Angie Erickson, our high school librarian. I see kids really distracted who should be studying, and I don't, but I think that they're happier because they have their phones. And I was um, doing some reading about it, and there's that whole idea of nomophobia, that like anxiety that's caused by being away from your phone, and that anxiety for teenagers sets in after 10 minutes only. Like after 10 minutes thinking about your phone and wondering where it is and feeling psychologically disconnected and that psychological disconnection causes a physiological response. So like heightened heart rate and like all of those autonomic stress responses. Here's a student who's a member of the student council. They really just want to have their phone on them because some people use it to communicate with like their friends. Like, if I tell my friend I'm in the library, I usually text him. And when we do provide no phone zones, like the one that has been in our library recently during exam period, 
This is what happens. The students were um, cheating and turning in a calculator and not their phone. Kids were breaching the barrier, like pushing shelves so that they could get in with their phones. Students were um, lying. Oh, I don't have my phone. I left it at home today. And then also they were, um, that back door got damaged. So because they could come up the back and then they were forcing it so that their friends could get in with, anyway, we got that fixed. So removing phones might make us more anxious. It might make us more frustrated. It might limit the things that we can access or do. It might make us reckless and want to break things down. All of that sounds bad. And several studies have shown that playing computer games can actually make you feel good for all the reasons that I stated in the intro. All good so far. Okay, so what about the other side? Well, something that I've learned during doing all this research is that almost every single thing in this kind of social research is incredibly nuanced and disputable. It's very unfamiliar for me. I'm a physics teacher and uh, things happen. You know, you control everything except one variable and stuff works. You know, you get a result. You can say this depends on this definitely. Uh, that doesn't work in social research because everything is so complex. So, for example, many researchers and media outlets are definitive that we are in the midst of a mental health crisis, which is particularly affecting adolescents and teenagers, and it started around in 2012. We see rates of depression and anxiety and suicide and loneliness going up among young people, and I'm concerned that social media is an important driver of that youth mental health crisis. That was the Surgeon General of the United States talking to a news outlet about some of the research showing the mental health crisis. One example of the data that they use to, to talk about this is a recent CDC report at the Center for Disease Control in the States. It showed that 57% of teen girls experience persistent sadness, which is up from 36% in 2011. And 30% of teen girls now say that they have seriously considered suicide, which is up from 19% in 2011. This is US data, but it's mirrored in almost every country where this kind of data is collected, and in boys too, although not quite as bad. However, a huge amount of these studies are based on self-reported data about anxiety, sadness, and suicidal thoughts. Actual diagnoses, according to the World Health Organization, for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, have barely changed since 2010, and some of them have decreased, like self-harm. Make no mistake, this is an incredibly complex and nuanced issue, and there may well be no possible way that anyone can definitively identify a cause for these things, but huge numbers of young people are self-reporting that they feel these things, and we have no reason to doubt what they're saying. One of the leading causes, proposed by social scientists, and the only one that I've seen that matches this timeline from 2012 is the rise of social media. In 2010, the iPhone 4 was released. It was the first phone with a selfie camera. And in 2012, Facebook bought Instagram, and the number of people using social media started to climb much more rapidly than it had before. Ever since then, both social media use and people experiencing anxiety and sadness have been rising. This level of complexity requires expertise and a lifetime of experience doing social science. Uh, these are things that I don't have, but one of the most robust academic reports I've read in a really long time looking at this research, and I've read a lot of research, 
um, is this meta-analysis by Professor Jonathan Haidt. He and his team have collated all of the res relevant studies that they can find. They're professional social scientists. Um, they've, they've collected all the studies from both sides of the argument and invited scientists around the world to disagree and dispute the findings. You know, they put it out there and then they say, what are we doing wrong? Then when scientists do get back and say, well, I think that this is different to how you've interpreted it, they then either respond justifying their approach or refine the report and and he's still doing that and his team is still doing that and it's a, a very very interesting 250 page or so read at the moment and it's it's growing overall it turns out that about two-thirds of the studies in this field have found that social media has a significant negative effect on well-being the other third found no effect no studies found a positive effect, not a single one. Like if we know that this is something that kind of is going to exacerbate mental health or it's going to exacerbate distress, isn't that kind of our role of safeguarding to reduce that anyway? That's Chris Kearns, our head of counselling, uh, and he said something that I hadn't considered before about social media and relationships. It's become trickier, I think, to navigate conflict, I think, for young people. Navigate, and like so many other people know, you know, you're always kind of connected in regards to that. You've always got some kind of, when your mind disappears to whatever that other person's doing or whatever that other person's saying, you can always satisfy that curiosity. He also echoed my thinking about asking people who know what they're talking about. We have to lend to... A person, you know, people who are genuinely doing this research in the field and are being very open and transparent about arguments for and against to allow themselves to be ripped apart. And we're still coming up with this correlation and causation. And to me, the collated, transparent research suggests that social media is a cause of well being issues that are being self reported at the moment by young people. But hold on. Don't start panicking about social media, deleting it off your kid's phone. This is incredibly complex social science, and it's intrinsically difficult to measure. And like everything else in the world, it seems that it completely depends on how we use it, and balance is important. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, right? Because I think that a lot of young people would say from, like, you know, you adult, kind of adults don't get it. This is where our lives are going, right? We're living our lives online now. And here's Dave Caleb, who is our primary digital literacy coach on East Campus. When somebody sees me and I'm on there and I'm like, my kids see me and I'm, I'm actually ordering groceries, you know, that's, that's actually something I need to do. Or I might be on Facebook, right? But what is that time replacing? Is that time replacing, you know, time where I could be building Lego with my, my son? Or is it time that's replacing where I could be reading a book? Or is it, you know, and being aware of like, I keep coming, the big word always, balance. Another thing to note is that it's definitely worse for some people than others. Here's Aidan Carr, our head of psychology. In the initial research focused on things which are not universal. So for example, something called social comparison orientation, where, and so, which some people have a lot of and some people don't for other reasons. Social comparison orientation is your tendency to judge your own value relative to other people. Uh, so if you decide, if, if your self-esteem is based on how well you think you rank compared to your friends in any way, academically, athletic achievement, attractiveness, coolness, I don't know, whatever, um, 
some people do that a lot and lots of social media is super toxic for those people because it gives you the impression that everyone else is always cool and always at a party and always having fun. Also, some research actually suggests that non-users of social media experience more anxiety than light users because they feel more left out. It seems that around 30 minutes per day is around the sweet spot. So why is social media bad? There's all of this evidence, there's all this self-reported data. Why is it bad? Well, social media algorithms are designed to keep you looking at that app for as long as possible. The more you look, the better they know you, the better they can tell advertisers exactly what you feel anxious about and what your weaknesses are and what your vulnerabilities are in terms of what you'll click on. So they make more money. Their whole business plan revolves around this. It's not a secret. It's called surveillance capitalism, and I'm going to talk more about it in the next episode on distractions. The way that they keep you looking is by showing you more things that make you feel angry or outraged or shocked or upset. And this is fundamental human nature. This isn't a design of the evil social media companies. This is just who humans are. We're more likely to look at things that give us negative feelings. You're more likely to look at a car crash on one side of the road than you are to look at the beautiful flowers on the other side. You're more likely to remember the comments on an article than the article itself because the comments more often make you feel angry and outraged. The words in the most popular search terms for videos on YouTube of all time are hates, obliterates, slams, and destroys. It makes sense. This is a biological thing. It makes sense. You know, our ancestors, when they were trying to defend themselves against lions, if they spent the whole time looking at flowers instead of looking at the dangerous lion that was terrifying and scary then they wouldn't have lasted very long so it makes sense it's human nature however what this means is that the algorithms of social media because they're designed to keep us looking for longer what they do is they take us to more and more extreme content to keep us viewing healthy diet content leads to eating eating disorder content workout content leads to toxic masculinity or body shaming content in a recent survey by the Samaritans, 83% of over 5,000 participants said they'd been exposed to self-harm or suicidal content without having searched for it. Facebook themselves document the negative impact that Instagram has on teens in some internal files leaked by whistleblower Francis Haugen. Facebook's own research says it is not just that Instagram is dangerous for teenagers, that it harms teenagers is that it is distinctly worse than other forms of social media. But, as per my caveats earlier, this is complex, nuanced, difficult to interpret. A few researchers have noted that Facebook's data and research methods were, quote, terrible, and that both positive and negative experiences with social media were documented. But, time and time again, social media is found to negatively affect self-reported well-being, even by our own EE students. One of my last uh, students did an EE about appearance-based technology. She was showing that there's a massive difference between Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. There was a higher incidences of body image disturbance, higher incidences of depression and anxiety. All of this has really made me think, would we be better off without our phones? But in my time as an educator, there is one thing that I have definitely learned for sure. Bans do not work. Like if they have a computer, they have access to the internet. 
right? Then we're going to be like, okay, well, let's block these sites. Well, do you think they can figure out a way around that? Yes. Not to mention the old experiment. If I say, don't think about elephants, what do you do? You think about elephants. A blanket ban makes these things more alluring, more exciting, and ultimately achieves the opposite of what it's intended for. The answer, I think, is education. You've heard these arguments. You've heard what I've been saying. You've heard the evidence. You've heard the experts. How does it make you think about your own device use? Will you make any changes? There's one more thing I'm going to touch on here in this well-being episode, and that's the idea of tech addiction. There is no clinical definition of tech addiction. There's no such thing in the world of psychology actually as being addicted to your phone. However, there are some similarities that are drawn by some researchers. Crystal meth's bad for people. Some people would like to take it, but the government has made the decision that it should be banned because the risks outweigh the desire of those individuals to do it. Smartphones are in the same bracket in my mind. You know that, um, yes, people should have choices, but governments regularly make decisions to remove choices because the choice is not healthy. Crystal meth is an extreme example, but smoking, vaping, underage drinking, all sorts of things are banned because they're um, unhealthy. Personally, I don't think that addiction is the right word. The goal of addiction, if you're addicted to something, the, the end goal, your target or society's target for you is to completely remove that thing from your life. And that is both unrealistic and unhelpful for, for devices. We're not going to survive without our devices in the modern world. I recently got my phone wet and it stopped working and almost everything that I do interacting with banks, online shopping, trying to go to my meetings on time. Everything is so much harder without my phone. It's not realistic to say that we're not going to use our phones at all. The comparison that I like is sugar. Lots and lots of sugar, bad. A donut every now and then is delightful. So... What's a realistic thing to aim for here? It should be a regular habit within our school that a child does feel comfort comfortable to sit with a teacher that they trust with their laptop and look at their habits on their laptop because that's where the children... It, the most powerful thing is when a child looks at their history. Yes. That's Angela Newby, who's the head of digital learning on our East Campus. And I think that this is a realistic goal. I think that a realistic goal is for us to be skilled at using our phones when we intentionally want to having a good understanding of the reality of what's going on behind that screen. I think that we can educate ourselves and each other on what kind of content we want to be consuming, actively choosing when to be on our phones and when not to be. I think we should aim for a world where we all make informed decisions about which channels to follow on social media, choose the ones that promote happiness, understand at least at a surface level how algorithms push us down avenues of more and more extreme content and make sure we're sticking to our values. I think a realistic place for us to be is to all ask ourselves, our friends and our family, what's important in my life? What helps me do more of that? Is anything stopping me from doing that? And what steps can I take to change my habits to spend more time doing the things that make me happy? If you do one thing today, have this conversation with your friends and family. I did, and now I spend more time with my daughters, much less time on social media, 
and a little bit more time being Doom Lord. Next time, I'm going to be looking at distractions. Are our phones $1,000 distraction machines, or can we be the masters of the notification? Thanks for listening. A special thanks to Angela Newby for doing all this work with me. Thanks to Aidan Carr, Dave Caleb, Angie Erickson, Chris Kearns, and the students who lent their voices to this episode. Music credits to artists, the whole other, and Track Tribe. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, can you edit out the bit about crystal meth? <laughs> <laughs>